Mastermind Agent is proud to present the Interview of the Month Club. Top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com. Joe Martin is the team leader of the Home Style Team. He has been an agent for 21 years. He works the Metro Phoenix, Arizona market. Joe Martin has been a salesperson his entire life. He started selling Christmas cards door-to-door when he was nine years old. He has excelled in multiple industries, including grocery, automotive, and real estate. Joe's sales and business skills have paid off. His team was ranked in the top 100 REMAX teams in the world in two out of the last three years. In 2004, Joe saw the writing on the wall. The market dynamics were shifting. Joe moved into REO and quickly built relationships with banks and asset managers. It paid off. In his best year, 2009, he sold 483 homes worth $60 million. Today, the market is shifting back to traditional sales, and Joe is shifting with it. Joe talks about the REO business, including how to break in, stand out in a crowd, approach asset managers, follow up, maintain relationships, and educate yourself on the industry. Joe also talks about staging a property for a quick sell, mobility marketing, sincerity selling, being of service, inside salesperson, inspirational dissatisfaction, and the mental side of success. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Joe. Well, thank you, Mike. I really appreciate it and quite honored to be here. Joe, before we talk about what you're doing now, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Well, in the proverbial words of uh, Bill Cosby, I started out as a child. And uh, <laughs> somewhere around uh, nine years old, I, uh, I started knocking on doors and selling Christmas cards and then uh, segued into uh, uh, delivering newspapers and uh, you know selling subscriptions and winning contests and all that kind of thing. And then just finished out schooling and stuff like that, and ended up in the uh, in the grocery business for a while. And uh, then the uh, internet came along, and I was very interested in that. Got into the automotive industry, led them to become uh, number nine, uh, number one in the world, nine years in a row, and really focused on the internet and that type of thing. And what I did was I set up businesses where the employees could come in and set up. Um, and avoid really the, all that normal back and forth that uh, everybody hates in the automotive industry. And then around 78, I, I got into real estate and uh, had uh, really been in that for about 21 years, you know, off and on. And uh, so there's kind of the, the skinny of that one. Why did you decide to get into real estate? Well, I loved real estate. I always, you know, seemed, it always was a uh, uh, a passion of mine since I was about 19 years old. And 
you know, from an investment viewpoint and that kind of thing, it was always intriguing to me. It seemed like a, a, a good way to go to, you know, build equity and, and, and uh, that type of thing. When you got into the business, do you think you had a fast start or a slow start? Well, I had a real slow start back then. Uh, you know, I started out with Century 21, and it was a good company, and I did okay. But I got it, back in those days, it was you know 18, 19 percent interest, and it was very, very difficult, and you had to be very creative uh, with uh, the financing and all that type of thing during those times. Of course, that was back in the in the day when. Uh, the assumptive mortgages without recourse and that kind of thing. So it was a lot easier to be creative in that sense, but a, a pretty slow start there. And uh, then, and that's kind of what took me a little bit out of the business uh, there for a while because I had six transactions fall out in uh, in December, and I have four kids and the need to put food on the table. So I had to do some other things to fill fill in the gap at that particular uh, particular time. And you know, we kind of went from there. So you've had your license since 78, so about 34 years, but you've been active in real estate for 21. And so you're telling me that it, it was kind of a, a gap. You, you would work for a while. It wasn't work out. You'd try something else. You'd come back in. How many times did you come in and out? Yeah, actually, it would be twice. You know, I, can't, I, I went out twice because I had my license. I got licensed in 78. And uh, then I got out of the business, although I maintained my license and did, you know, and maintained activity and all that. But then uh, my license lapsed for a number of years. I just let it go while I was in the automotive industry for about 10 years and then got back into the business after that. So really, it was about twice. When was the most recent time that you came back in and you, you've been solid since then? 2004 is uh, when I came back into the business full-time. That's essentially when we uh, started uh, getting into the uh, REO business. So really, you've been building this business up, this this current business since 2004, so about eight years. Yeah, that's about right. Yep, eight years. January 2004, I started with Remax 2000 and then um, made a couple of moves and ended up purchasing the current and opening the current Remax Diamond with my my partners and uh, one of them being my son. Do you currently own the Remax franchise as well as running your own team? That is correct, yeah. How many homes did you sell last year? I believe it was 461 units last year, counting the, uh, you know, the buyer agent sides as well. Yeah, it was good. It was a good year. We ended up being... Uh, the uh, you know, making the top 100 Remax teams in the world. Uh, that was uh, two out of the last three years, so that was quite uh, exciting. Congratulations! Oh, thanks a lot. Well, I mean, to me, that's really a big accomplishment. I'm pretty proud of that because, you know, w- when you consider how many teams there are in, in Remax and and you know the number of offices. I mean, we're in 89 countries uh, across the globe, and uh, you know, there's over 6,000 offices and you know, nearly 100,000 agents, and to hit that kind of an accolade, I've got to say that uh, I couldn't have done it alone. It's just fortunate that I have a really good team backing me up. Where is Mesa, Arizona located? It's about 20 miles southeast of uh, Phoenix. It's adjacent to uh, Tempe, Arizona, and it connects with uh, uh, Scottsdale on the north side. I mean, in the Phoenix uh, uh, metropolitan area, uh, it's what we would call uh, in the East Valley. And so it's kind of like a suburb of Phoenix, is that correct? 
Yeah, it's the third largest city in Arizona uh, behind Phoenix and Tucson. Yeah, it's a suburb of Phoenix, yep. Describe your current real estate market. The average price, which I actually pulled these numbers uh, yesterday, so they're pretty current, is around 202795 And in January, that was 163962 So we've had a significant, uh, I think, somewhere a little over 20% increase in average price just since January. So we're we're trending upwards here. Interestingly enough, um, there was over 5,400 sales under 200,000 out of a total of uh, uh, 8,287 sales in the last month. So um, the trending is upward at the current time. Our inventory is very low comparatively to what it has been, and of course. Um, now we're seeing, you know, tremendous amount of multiple offers, just like, you know, back in 2004, 2005, that kind of thing. For example, we, we put a, a home on the market, and literally within about two minutes, uh, I had my first offer. I'm not kidding. It was just amazing. It's just nuts. And, and then that segued into about 73 offers. So processing 73 offers is a lot of work. I can tell you that. Thank God I have people to help me. So they're making offers sight unseen. Yeah, I don't think they went out and saw the house in that two-minute time frame, frankly. But, yeah, they are. And that is kind of one of the things that we make sure that they have seen the house because otherwise, you know, it just uh, they're tying up the property. And the, the banks and the sellers and the servicers really want to make sure that they've seen the home. So that's one of the questions that we, you know, follow up when we have to do our, you know, highest and best when there's multiple offers. How do you deal with a situation where you have 73 offers? Well, we, we start brewing the coffee and, uh, and, and start going through all of the, uh, the offers one by one to make sure that all the paperwork is there. And if it's not, then we notify the buyer's agent uh, to turn the paperwork in. And, of course, then um, after we've collected all the information and input the offers into the portals, then we uh, take the direction from the servicer or the asset manager to what to do next, which is typically to run uh, highest and best, and then we notify all the agents requesting their highest and best at a certain time. And we usually put that into the MLS to notify all the other people that are considering making an offer uh, that they need their highest and best offer to be put in by a certain time. And after those are all in, we input those into the portal again, and then the seller makes their decision, and we notify the, the winner and notify the other people that, you know, sorry, it, it didn't work out. Interestingly enough, though, many of the people, sometimes even offers that would have potentially won, drop out because uh, they have a, uh, they don't want to get in a bidding war. Well, if I were going to give, and this is a really big tip here, to anyone that's making an offer on that side of things to not give up too soon. Rather than dropping out, if you're not going to change your offer, just stay in the game because you may be the winner. I've seen it happen so many times. I mean, I've, and I've had people come in in the 11th hour and, and, and see them win, win uh, deals.
There's a lot of strategy that's going on. The 73 offers, were they from 73 different buyers, or was that the total number of offers throughout all the rounds? That was from all different buyers, yeah, 73 different buyers. That was the bank's solution, was just to go highest and best. Yeah, that typically is. Anytime there's multiple offers, I mean, sometimes they'll just choose one of the offers, but that's rare. Generally speaking, they will run highest and best to give everybody an opportunity to, you know, change either the pricing or some other term. I mean, it's not always the best price that wins the deal. It's not just price. It's a term. I mean, some people will, you know, waive inspections or, I mean, I've seen people come in, and here's another big tip, is if uh, you're making an offer on on a bank-owned, particularly, I mean, I'm sure this works in traditional as well, but is to increase the earnest money. That's a big thing. All things being equal in a scenario like that, uh, you have a guy with, you know, say 10 or 20,000 earnest money, a guy with 500 bucks, you know, who are you going to choose? I mean, the guy's a little bit more committed. And that's a, a big uh, swaying factor when uh, people are making decisions. Now, it's not something I necessarily, you know, recommend, but it is something that happens a lot, particularly with the cash buyers, is they will waive inspections and I mean, if you have an offer that comes in that's cash, uh, they waive inspection and all the and there's no contingencies and they have huge earnest money. I mean, it's just kind of hard to turn that down when they're when you're the seller, and that's what happens a lot of times where it's pretty much a done deal as soon as they put the offer in and that it, with those kind of terms. Right now is um, a difficult time because uh, the uh, uh, the servicers and all that, they're they are pushing for, you know, the owner occupants, and I think that's a really big thing. Uh, not think, I know, it's a, it's a big thing uh, because you've got, you know, the first look with the GSEs and stuff like that to give um, them an opportunity. But the financing part of it is sometimes difficult because of the, the, the homes don't always get, you know, repaired to, you know, FHA, you know, guidelines. So your market has pretty dramatically changed in the last year, is that correct? Yeah, no question. Um, it's leaning even more towards, uh, you know, traditional, which uh, actually uh, outweighed uh, REO and short sales, which were running somewhere around, you know, in the 70 to even as high as, you know, 80 plus uh, percent of the market. Uh, and traditional, I think last month was 51 percent of the business. So and, and then short sales and uh, REO were the were the balance. I heard there's also a trend going on right now where banks are moving away from REO and trying to push short sell prior to the foreclosure. Do you see that happening? No question. There's been multiple meetings that we've had with several uh, of the banks and uh, the majors with um, that trend. They've got it kind of figured out. I mean, short sales have always been one of those things where it takes forever to get the solution and the answers and all that. But because of the magnitude of the of the volume, I mean, you know, you're an you're an asset manager that's handling this type of a thing or a negotiator or whatever, and, and um, you know, you've got 400 files on your desk or 500 files. You can only handle so many of those, and of course, that's when paperwork gets lost and all that. But they've streamlined that now, and they've got software solutions, and they're really uh, have figured out that it's going to cost them less money to do that which it always was the case, but it's just they had, were really set up for that. Well, now it's been going on long enough, and they've staffed up enough in many areas and uh, really made a uh, a more streamlined process. And, and even to the point where they're providing uh, 
relocation assistance for some of the folks that uh, have d- decided to go in that fashion. We kind of let the cat out of the bag, but do you have a niche or specialization? Well, you could probably guess from the discussion so far, but yeah, our niche has been, you know, the REO and the and the and the distress. I mean, we do traditional in all types of of transactions, of course, but our, our biggest volume over the past several years um, has been in the REO area. And how did you decide on that niche? What was the decision process to go into REO? Yeah, actually, it's it's interesting. We we had a, a short sale that we were attempting to uh, get bought. And uh, by the time uh, that the agent on the other side got everything uh, taken care of, it had already went to foreclosure. So we began doing some research on uh, who was going to have that property and ran into the um, REO agent at the time and then started, you know, reading up and learning a bit about you know, REO and digging into, uh, hey, what's this whole niche, you know, about, and uh, started gobbling up uh, information and then uh, began applying to, uh, you know, some of the different places at the time and uh, and then got accepted by one bank and then just kind of segued, you know, into the others based on experiences that we had, you know, gathered and started uh, expanding. Uh, from there, I mean, we went. I went to a lot of conferences and stuff like that, and and still do to connect with you know asset managers and you know the people in the business and to continue to learn and resolve. When was the first year that you went into REO? Was that two thousand four? Yeah, two thousand four. And had you done any REO prior? You know, you've been in the in and around the business for a long time. Had you done REO prior to two thousand four? I had done some BPOs and stuff, you know, earlier earlier on, but we really got ramped up in, in 2004. You talked about how you got into your first assignment. Let's try to break that down. Again, if somebody were looking to either get into REO or to expand their REO, you said you you looked around, you saw this, this transaction fall apart, you sought to go to REO, you start to investigate that, and you bumped into banks and started applying to banks. Then a bank accepted. You said you leveraged that in the other banks. How did you leverage that in the other banks? What I did was I applied. I found out, you know, the different places to apply to the banks, and I went in and began, you know, applying. We did a lot of BPOs and stuff like that for the banks. And, of course, that is one way that people, uh, I mean, the asset managers are the ones that are looking at the uh, at the BPOs, among others, obviously. And so if you do a good quality BPO, I mean, you're, and they keep seeing your name coming across, you know, their desk, I mean, they're they're bound to recognize your name at some point. And they don't always cross paths, of course, but it is something that we focused on the BPOs that would turn into listings and not so much, you know, on the fee BPOs, but at the time, which has kind of changed a little bit, but at the time there was a, a lot of um, opportunity for that, and so we really focused on that, and then just applied to all the different places, and then took the necessary um, educational requirements that that they had, and then it was just because of a, really a lot of timing and the amount of volume that they had that we were able to expand, and then began applying to you know the GSEs and some of the majors and stuff like that, and. And, of course, you know, as you get experience, it becomes a little bit 
you know, easier to, uh, you know, get your foot in the door. And the big thing is, really, it's just like anything. It's about relationships. I mean, they have conferences all across um, the country. A lot of them are in Dallas because that's a big hub, or they have sometimes in Denver and some other places. But going to those conferences and, you know, connecting with the asset managers and connecting even with, you know, other REO agents around the country who can refer, you know, you to someone who might be looking in uh, some area, that's a big thing. It's really relational, you know, based. And that's kind of what had helped helped me grow, you know, my business is by really getting in there and, you know, getting to know some of these people. You know, if they're looking for somebody who's going to take the time to be aggressive enough to uh, go and educate themselves in the uh, conferences about REO and all that, then, you know, you're kind of going over and above, just like, you know, getting a designation would put you over and above the guy that had none. Which conferences do you attend? Which do you recommend? Five Star is a, a good, a great conference. The uh, REO Expo, that's a real good, solid uh, conference. Those just uh, off the top of my head. And when you go to the conferences, you, you mentioned you've got two objectives. One, to get in front of asset managers, but also to meet agents. Where have you had the most success? Both. It's really just at getting out there and, and, and mingling and stuff like that. Uh, it's not so much being the person that when... See, they have panels at the uh, conferences and different learning educational stuff in different rooms and things like that. And a lot of these conferences, what they do is they have places that... Uh, they have breakout sessions, for example, where you can go to, from room to room and they have like, you know, B of A in one room and there's Wells Fargo in another room and then there's... Um, you know, just pick a bank, you know, uh, there's Fannie Mae and there's Freddie Mac and, and et cetera, et cetera, in these different rooms. And they have representatives from those banks there to meet and help educate the realtors that are at that conference on how to get in to their or organization. And they will give you, you know, uh, the URLs and the website addresses uh, and uh, sometimes the email addresses of, of them personally to to connect with. You know. What I did was I, I made some really good-looking, uh, you know, pamphlets, and I provided also some technology stuff. Like I had a, a business card, you know, made up that had uh, where it flips out and it plugs into a, uh, a USB with a complete resume and complete presentation. So when you plug it in, it opens up, and here's this really cool presentation that says, I want to work for you. And, you know, that's just something that, that puts you over and above, you know, the normal guy just trying to, you know, pass on a card in a uh, fighting, you know, a thousand people to get to the front of the line, which is what a lot of people do, you know, and that's they they it's, they they're not going to get in doing that. Right. So that's what I've heard that that going direct and a little too aggressive doesn't work or can backfire. And so you you say you try to stand out with something unique. This USB business card sounds pretty wild. What else did you do to try to stand out or be unique or, or go a different direction than the herd? Well, I did, I did some unique things in the sense that I, you know, had a website built and did, a, you know, video resume that focused on, you know, the REO directly, 
where it was a separate uh, site. I mean, it was a site that had other items also in it, but we had, you know, some video and things like that. You know, staying in, staying in contact with the people after I've, after I've met them, I mean, the fortune is in the follow-up. You're not going to necessarily meet somebody and then the next week be hired. But that's happened. I mean, my son and I went to the Five Star one year, and he was in one room and I was in another. He ended up meeting uh, one of the guys from one of the asset companies uh, that was looking for people and ended up uh, getting hired and uh, ended up being a very big account for us. But, you know, had we not been there, that would have never happened. So unique is that we had also a... Uh, uh, like a uh, you know a, a bound uh, it's like a little binder that uh, has on the front you know a picture of uh, Uncle Sam that says I want to work for you and the guy they're pointing like in the thing and and it has some accolades uh, on the front and stuff like that and then you flip through it and it has everything all together right there with your resume and other things that you would need I mean where somebody could could really hire you on the spot with that information. And so you've got two different, you know, uh, channels. The other big channel is uh, you can connect with a lot of these folks on uh, on LinkedIn and through social media. Uh, so I mean, if you're looking to connect with some, it's it's not just you know all business. Have you been successful at generating relationships, uh, new relationships with asset managers through LinkedIn? Yeah, they're they're pretty open to that. I mean, you just have to. Uh, get in there and uh, once you're connected to one I mean there's many others that you can get connected to and then of course here you go back to that whole you know referral business where if you're connected to other agents around the country who know asset managers and they know you're a guy that does a good job well it's not too hard to get recommended or uh, to the other person and, con and connect with them in a in a different way I mean but and the thing is you don't have to be a pest I mean nobody wants a pest it's about you know standing out and being a little bit different in the sense that, you know, uh, backing up what you say and being the person that you really s say that you are and just being honest and sincere and put yourself in their shoes. I mean, nobody wants to be hounded, you know, but if you build a relationship over time, it's just like anything. Just to get to know somebody and, you know, just you don't go for the kill like two seconds later. You've mentioned that one of the big keys is the follow-up. You said the fortune is in the follow-up. So, if you had just met an asset manager, how would you go about following up with them? Usually, you know, by email. I mean, if I if I if I get their phone or something, I'll give them a call. Or what I'm looking for is if to, to find out if there's anything that I can be of service. I mean, that's a big thing. Is is about you know kind of the give to receive you know scenario where you're offering your services. If there's any way that you can be of service. You know, you know, I haven't let you know. I mean, it's top of mind consciousness, and so whether you're connecting through LinkedIn or Facebook or 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 some you know area like that, you know, it's about following up or sending a, a Christmas card or, or or finding out you know when they're in some way where their what their birthday is. I mean, and uh, remembering that you know, sending a, sending a, sending a guy a birthday card. I mean, sometimes you know his own kids don't send him birthday card. Let's go through some scripts and dialogues. What kind of things are you actually saying to the asset manager when you meet them? So when that first contact happens, let's say you're at one of the conferences and you start chatting with them, what exactly do you say? 
Well, I just introduced myself, and in, in, or or what happens a lot of times is other people will introduce me. I know a lot of the others around the country, and you know, of course, you know, I'm in now the National REO Brokers Association, so you know they have hospitality rooms and things like that. That if you know, you you can uh, get into that organization, it's really nice because then you're able to be introduced. You know, very easily, let's put it that way, because they'll have hospitality rooms in the and some of the asset managers will just you know hang out there and you know have a coke or or a drink or something like that and uh, and it's it's an easy way to meet them. But mainly, it's really just uh, so much personally. And then kind of the last thing is about you know handing the guy a card or handing him like I say that that USB that has the USB and then they, they they really it's so that's really a unique so unique that they they just think it's the coolest thing and also and they remember that so that's been a big thing for me is uh, that's just unique I mean I saw somebody handing out USBs at one point and I thought hey there's that's a great idea and then I took it further and made it into there was this other deal that I had that found and made it in it's a credit card with a USB that just kind of flips out and so it's nothing really specific it's just about you know I mean if you meet somebody I mean what do you say you know obviously hello and you know that kind of thing and you know start talking about what what they do and uh, you're just having a conversation really I mean that's t for me that's what it's been about is just having a conversation you know, I'm not trying to run up there after a guy's been on a panel and, uh, you know, uh, shove a card in his face so the guy's got 400 cards. He, he's never going to remember me. I mean, I was on a panel with uh, uh, one of the one of the asset managers, and uh, he actually spoke about that where uh, there was a, a guy in the back of the room, and he, he noticed this guy because he, and he was flooded with, with all these agents, you know, shoving cards in his face. And... And that's all fine and dandy. I mean, but the this guy's in the back, and he thought it was kind of odd. He's he's not totally in the back, but kind of in the middle of the room, and he's he's watching, but he's not rushing the stage. So he, after people cleared out a little bit, he he goes over and talks to the guy, and he says, "Hey, he says you're you're in the why aren't you up here? You know, you know, trying to hand me a card just like everybody else." And and the guy answered him that he he had uh, felt that it was uh, more respectful just to you know lay back and. And then so he asked him for his card and ended up hiring the guy. This USB business card that you have, on the business card portion, does you know, the credit card portion, does it look like a business card? Is that We're trying to visualize this thing. Yeah, it, it, and I'll, send, I'll, I'll take a picture and send you one uh, so you can see what it looks like. But, it, yeah, it's a business, it looks just like a business card. I mean, it's got, uh, you know, the my logo and all that stuff. And then on the back, um, it's got some... Uh, other uh, logos of you know different uh, things that we are involved with you know like ResNet and Equator and things like that, but on the on the one end of it 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 has a little you know skinny piece and it flips out uh, and flips open where that would just plug into your uh, your USB port, and on that it's really it's about a, a three gig uh, of uh, storage, so you know they can store additional. Uh, information, not just the resume or whatever. So, and I always make a point to let them know that. So, and the, every, every one of them is throwing it in their wallet. Is it made out of plastic and it's about as thick as a credit card or is it a little thicker? Yeah, a little thicker than a credit card. Just a little bit thicker than a credit card. It's not as thick as your normal. Uh, it's really a skinny USB, but it fits right in there. It's amazing. 
it's just amazing technology. But it's uh, yeah, it's plastic. It's a, it's credit card kind of stock, you know, a little bit thicker than that. How much does it cost, and where did you get it? We got them online. I have an IT guy that works with me here, and so he uh, he put he packaged it and did the graphics and all that stuff together. I think it was somewhere around ten, fifteen bucks a card, something like that. I don't remember, give or take. I assume you had to buy them in bulk. No, you could buy them, you know, like in twenty twenty five, something like that, whatever. I think we bought like fifty to begin with, and then you know, kind of went from there. Well, I'll hand them out to everybody. Well, maybe hand out more though. Those sound pretty good. That sounds like a, a great investment. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I don't go. I, it's not like a, if another agent's asking me for my card, I'm pro- I'm not going to hand those out. I mean, but I, I have them kind of designed for um, you know the asset managers and you know uh, in different you know banks and stuff like that. You also mentioned that you had established or designed a video that you have on a website. Uh, that you can direct people to. Do you have a link that we could go take a look at that? Yeah, it, it's on azreosales.com, which uh, it's in one of the pull-downs where I think it even says video resume or something like that. It's just, you know, essentially just me talking, I mean, so people can see a, who they're going to be doing business with, that kind of thing. Back to the question of follow-up. So you've made an initial contact. It's a very friendly contact. You you might be able to provide them with this fancy business card. What's the next step? You're going to contact them by phone or email. And, and again, what are the particulars that you try to bring up at that time? Do you offer to do a free BPO? You said offer of service. What does that mean? With a follow-up email, it's pretty much where you can offer Hey, if they have, uh, it's almost like a question and offer at the same time where you're, you're going to ask if they need any work, um, done in the area. I mean, whether it's a, you know, a second BPO or obviously any assets or anything like that. But just putting your name out there and, and, and offering to help them. I mean, or offering to, uh, take on, uh, I mean, do they have a property? For example, that um, is giving them trouble that they can't move. I mean, one of their most troubled properties. I mean, hey, you know, bring it on. Let 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 us help you. You know, to get to get rid of it if you've got anything that's giving you some trouble and you're not able to move in a in a second BPO or something like that or third BPO uh, that you might need some help with that uh, we're not going to get paid on. Obviously, then just hey, send it over. I'm here to 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 help you out. I mean, it's about being a service. You know. And another thing, the other thing that I that 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 I do, I almost forgot, is uh, along with that, what I do is give them uh, market statistics on what's going on in the marketplace in the area, and that's a huge thing because they're not. I mean, they're usually handling multiple states, and they don't have time necessarily, or maybe not even access to go in directly to, you know, the MLSs and pull those kind of uh, comps and pull that kind of information to let them know. I mean, they want to know some valuable information, and that's a great way to stay in touch, too, where, you know, you almost can get permission. Hey, if you like that, uh, would you like me to, you know, continue to provide the information? And you don't even have to ask permission for that. I mean, you can do that in in your follow-up. And, you know, that doesn't mean like every week you're showing up, you know, hey, here's some great stuff, you know, but... You know, just do it where it's, uh, it's more like a timed interval than it is about, you know, pounding them every, every day. Hey, here I am again. <laughs>
On your follow-up, what's your frequency? How often do you try to get in front of them? Well, it, it depends. I mean, if I'm getting responses, and then obviously you can pick up the pace a little bit, but, I mean, no less than probably, you know, once a month type deal. I mean, and, and maybe in the beginning, you know, a couple of times, and, you know, it, it all depends. I mean, it's, it just varies on, on, on some of the responses and stuff like that. The, the, the thing that I really want to avoid is just being a pest. I mean, I have contacted some people almost daily where, you know, when I'm, you know, looking for work to um, see if there's anything that I can do to help them out. But, you know, I don't do that, like, you know, constantly. Like, I mean, you're not going to hear from me 30 days in a row. I mean, that that's a good way to ruin a relationship. It's like people, they get loads and loads of emails from all the, all the place, and they don't have time for a bunch of, hey, what about me's? You mentioned the National REO Broker Association. It also sounded like it's an exclusive group. Do you have to be invited into that group, or can you just join? Well, you you can apply, but you have to have, um, and, and honestly, I don't remember the exact minimums because I've been in it a while now, but some minimum requirements as far as uh, REO and stuff like that. But it's a great organization. Uh, it's uh, nrba.com, I believe, is where you can go and, and, and check that out. And that's after you get going. Yeah, that's not something that you it, it took me two years to get into that. Uh, so, um, I mean, you just don't walk in off the street and go, hey, I want to be an REO broker in, in RBA because they screen everybody and they want to make sure that they have, you know, some of the top, you know, people. Or, or it, it doesn't mean that you've got to be the top person as far as volume. It just means that you need to know, you know, how to do the business and do it right. That's the main thing. What pushed you over the top at the end of two years? What did you accomplish that they said, okay, come on in? I had done enough of uh, volume, I suppose, uh, and like I say, it's not about the volume, but I had enough experience with the different, you know, banks and and I suppose my persistence, and also probably from, you know, meeting them at the conferences and seeing them and and uh, you know pestering a little bit about, hey, uh, uh, it's 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 time now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, it's like okay. I mean, come on, what's say what's the hold up here? You know. I've been ready, you know. And then the benefit is these private parties and introductions. Well, yeah, it's not so much the private parties as it is the uh, a lot of the times when you go to these conferences, they have, you know, a hospitality room or or and, and the interaction. Like for example, they have a a big huge conference that's that's a very large, largely attended by the asset managers, where you know they have essentially table set up with individual asset managers that you can go and interact directly with them and get the information with, you know, multiple. I mean, there's a room of maybe 50 tables type thing, and they've got all these different companies are, that are involved, and that's a good, good way, you know, to um, to get uh, get to know people, you know, directly. And there's other organizations as well. There, I mean, it's not the only one, but, and I've, I've joined several uh, of these along, along the way. Some I'm still with, some I'm not, but any way to really get out there and get uh, get in front of people if you're looking to get an REO, and it's not too late to do that. There's they've cut down the parameters and actually have added on a lot of agents, and then some of the agents, you know, fall out because they're not, uh, you know, doing the job properly. And so there's always opportunity. So it's not too late for a, a newer person to get in the REO. No, not at all. I mean, foreclosures are unfortunately going to be around for a while, so. It's it's not. I mean, the volume is probably not going to be the way it was. I don't see that happening back in you know 2008, 2009. But 
and even 2010 for that matter. But it's still there, and there's still volume, and you know we're still doing business. It's just not as 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 big as it was recently because everybody's shifting to short sales. It's an election year, right? Are you starting to make a shift towards short sales? We are with short sales and traditionals. I mean, it's not so much a shift as it is an additional pillar. Our shift. I mean, we've been doing short sales for you know some time, uh, but uh, it's it's not been you know the the bulk of our business. So we're just bring, we're bringing on additional help and all that to really get out there. We what we we created um, a home rescue team. I mean, and created some websites and things like that to try and focus on uh, helping uh, you know people retain. I mean, that's the first thing that we're concerned about is not about hey, are we going to short sell the home, but hey, is there a way that we can really help the folks know their options and possibly retain their home. Yeah, that's the key element on, the, on that whole deal. And if it turns out that the short sale is the best option, well, you know, then we're here and we're educated and we have uh, the ability to, to help them do that. Sounds like it's a, a counseling function. Well, I, I think that's the big part of it uh, as far as uh, the short sale to begin with. For example, there's a, a new, it's uh, called the Arizona Foreclosure Prevention Task Force or something like that. We were invited as among a bunch of other, uh, you know, top agents in the area to go in and, they, and the banks are, are providing on-site counseling and on-site even approvals, you know, directly there for either, you know, some of the modifications or or some of the or even short sales you know directly there and, and we'll be going there to educate you know the consumers on some of their options and also to uh, let them know as far as what what uh, the process of you know the short sale is going to be as far as that goes so education is a big deal uh, absolutely i think it's one of the key elements of the whole thing is to get out there and try to educate the consumer because unfortunately when people are in that position you know they're not opening their mail and they're not answering the door and uh you know a lot of times they're in in denial about what's really going on and i think even statistically somewhere over 50% or and i don't know the exact statistic but uh, uh go to foreclosure without you know ever even attempting to do any type of uh, uh home retention scenario and a lot of that's from a lack of education are you able to do loan modifications? Do you help people with loan modifications? No, we don't do the loan modifications, but we we help to you know school them you know directly on you know where and how to uh, you know to go about that. How are you finding people that are in need of a short sale? Is it just landing in your lap, or are you actively going out to try to find people? Well, we. Um go out and uh, do everything from, you know, knock on doors to providing education, you know, online, everything from uh, community outreach to uh, webinars and seminars and uh, these events. We pull lists of people that have, you know, are on the late, late pay type scenarios and try to get out there and uh, get them to open up to see if there's a way that we can we can help uh, help this help the situation. When you're saying you're knocking on doors, are you just generically knocking on a neighborhood? Or are you specifically going to people who are behind in their payments? No, it's more specific. Um, we we've done both, but it, there was a point in time where I mean, the underwater scenario at one point was you could knock on on 
probably seven, at least half the doors are going to be underwater, you know, if they have a, a loan. But we didn't do a whole lot of that. We we focused really more on the people that, that kind of were up on, on top of the radar there. Now, you mentioned you got a list of late pays. Where do you get such a list? You can get those, you know, through multiple areas. I mean, you can purchase them separately with, at, at some of the websites that, that have that available or some of the title companies will provide that information, you know, directly through. It's county rec It's public record, so you can go get it yourself and at the public uh, county uh, county directly or you can have somebody pull it for you. If someone's in default, if they've if the bank has started foreclosure, that's in the public record, but late pays is not. So did you mean that you're going after people who have have gone into default, or are you talking about people who have stopped making a couple of payments? No, no, I'm talking about the uh, notice of trustee sales. That's what I'm saying. I'm going to go back for a second. Just on your REO business, you mentioned that a lot of this is connection and network-oriented, and you've been referred by other agents. Have you referred agents to asset managers? Yeah, I've had asset managers ask me, hey, do you know somebody in, you know, for example, Chicago? You know, I used to uh, work with um, a gal that was in, uh, well, a very nice lady, actually, from uh, City Mortgage uh, in uh, uh, in St. Louis, and she had t taken on Chicago area, and she asked me if, uh, because we had a good relationship and I did a lot of volume for her, if I knew anybody in Chicago. And uh, I referred... Uh, a person to her that uh, that I knew that I'd met at one of the conferences, and and they hooked up and ended up you know doing business together. The reason that that's happening is because the asset managers are being transferred between apartments or take on a different area that they're assigned. They're being rotated through areas. Is that correct? Yeah, that happens quite a bit actually. Asset managers they change say maybe for a few months they're going to handle, you know, Arizona, California, New Mexico, and the next thing you know, they're handling, uh, you know, Missouri and Michigan and, you know, Illinois. They switch that around. I don't know how often or what the, you know, matrix is that they do that, but I do notice that they do change different areas. And that's why they would ask an existing agent that they're working with, hey, do you know someone in this other area? It's just an easy way for them to try to transition into the new area. Yeah, because they're always looking for, you know, good people. And if you're the person that has a relationship, you know, with the asset manager and talk to them and they, you, the door is open for them to, to for, for you to do that. And it happens on the other side of the coin as well where people will refer, you know, other business. But here again, that goes back to having that type of relationship by staying in touch with these people. It also drives home the point that when you go out, uh, when an agent goes out to a conference, they want to meet other agents and build relationships with other agents that are already in the REO industry because these referrals are popping up. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what, I mean, it's not so much j just about going to the conference because of the education and the uh, the room where they have all the vendors and stuff like that. But it's really what's happening out in the hallways. You know, a lot of these guys, you know, they they like to hang out at the, um, uh, and have a few toddies and stuff like that. And so you can run into them in those, those arenas as well, uh, where it's just a more casual approach. And then, you know, it's not about just going and trying to say, hire me, hire me, hire me. It's about, 
you know, let's get to know one another. And then if they like you and uh, all that, then it's like, hey, what do you, you know, what do you do? You know, <laughs> and then you, then the door is open for you to, you know, sell your yourself. And if you're that, that person that knows how to articulate and knows how to present yourself properly, then you're going to, you know, have an opportunity there that somebody's going to follow up with. You know, I know some really good guys, and I've watched some of them and and what they've done in uh, providing, you know, information and uh, uh, and having, uh, you know, market data and things like that that really shows the other people. I mean, the asset managers that they're talking to that they they know their market and they know their stuff, and then to the point that, well, wow, that's pretty amazing, you know. And yeah, by the way, give me your card. How many banks and asset managers are you currently working with? I think the total is somewhere around 32 different ones. I mean, some we have a business with uh, directly, some are, you know, they're sporadic, but I think that's the total number that we're, uh, the companies that we're in, you know, give or take one or two. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. You brought it up earlier. There's a kind of a division. You've got private banks and then you've got the government entities. How does that break out for you? Are you working with just the private banks or are you also working with the government agencies? No, we work with the government agencies. I mean, we have, we work directly with Freddie Mac. We've done a Fannie Mae. We're not Fannie Mae Direct because there's just a limited amount of those, you know, going around. And, and the, the timing for us was not right because I was with a different company. And to get into there, you need to be, uh, they deal with the owner directly the timing of how the opportunity for that to get in was not really there at the moment. Then it's just, then the other major banks like, you know, B of A Direct and Wells Fargo and, you know, Chase and that kind of thing. And then you've got your asset companies that, you know, your outsourcers, you know, that go from there. Are you working with HUD? No, we're not working directly with HUD other than selling HUDs. Um, we do. We sell a lot of HUDs, but we are not um, one of the HUD brokers, uh, listing brokers. You know, currently, it's something that we would would like to be uh, involved with, and 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 we st- and still are pursuing. But they only have openings so so often. So when that comes up, then we will we'll be applying again. Yeah, it's very competitive. So you have the Freddie Mac account. That's your government side, and the rest is private banks. Yeah. That would be uh, that would be accurate, and well, not so much private banks. I mean, I think some of them are on the stock exchange and stuff, but yeah. Freddie Mac, looking at your overall REO business, what percentage of your business is attributed to Freddie Mac? That's a good question. Probably, I, I, and I don't have that number actually in front of me, but I'm going to take a, a kind of a, a feel. That's probably around twenty percent, maybe. You're doing a lot of work with non-government groups, and it sounds like a very diversified business. You've got 32 relationships. Yeah, it is diversified. That's been one of the good things because, you know, when one is not producing, then there's another one that that is, you know, keeping things going as far as the assets and 
in uh, in in work and that kind of thing. So that has been a, a very good thing for us. Let's talk about when you get these assets in. I know that a lot of work happens, but let's talk about the marketing because you have a couple of ideas on on marketing and using technology. Tell us about marketing a property. Well, marketing the property, okay, is probably one of the most the the key elements in in the whole scenario. And if you if you break this down as far as just talking about you know REO and compared to traditional, there's some parallels as far as the marketing goes. But you have a different scenario in the preparation, where with an REO you're going to go out and you know, obviously do your your occupancy checks and that type of thing. If, if let's presume that you know it's past that point where it's vacant, it's been rekeyed. Now we've got to you know trash out the property and make sure that it's uh, it's it's cleaned up and all the initial services are done, and the and the and the yards uh, you know ready to go. And we've taken uh, pre uh, trash out photos and we've taken post trash out photos or we've taken post repair photos. There was. Uh, repairs done, so there's a lot that goes into just the whole preparation of it. Similar to like in traditional, you're going to go out and actually stage the property, which is a real critical element where people I see make this huge error in judgment all the time, where they're taking pictures, um, where they've got pictures and stuff all over the 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 refrigerator and stuff all over the counters, and and they don't stage the home properly before they take those marketing photos that they put up or they take photos that are dark or foggy or or you know there's people in the photo even it, it's just these photos are a, a real key element to to the marketing piece of the whole equation and so that's number 1 is making sure that you've got you know good photos and you've prepared the home properly to to show traditionally you want to make sure you clear off the counters i mean it's kind of like you're telling people at that point that hey you're moving so start packing <laughs> and you know pack up your stuff and get it out of the way i mean it's better off in the garage than than it would be you know where stuck in the in the cupboards or the closets and that kind of thing now on the REO side then everything is trashed out and there's nothing in there but some of the times we've actually, uh, you know, done a little bit of staging where instead of just having, you know, that vacant home in there to provide, a, you know, a better picture. So you get the pictures and then you, you get them on all the different marketing sites that, that you, you know, you put it up there. You get it on MLS and all the other different places that you, uh, you know, like, you know, whether it's Realtor.com and all the different syndications that you do. YouTube and social media and, you know, on down the list. What could you tell us about marketing in a tech-savvy world? I think it goes back to recognizing that there's multiple areas that people are communicating. For example, right now, mobile marketing is huge. If you just go in any room, any restaurant, anywhere and count the number of people that don't have a cell phone. I mean, it's going to be on one hand. I mean, it's not that many people. Everybody has their cell phone at their hip or in their hand almost 24-7, except for maybe when they're sleeping. 
and half the time then the text messages are going off waking you up so you know they because they forgot to turn it off you know so communication in tech savvy world is to go out and ask people when you contact them for starters how they would like to be contacted for example some people love to be contacted by text message if you want your message to get read 97% of the people are reading their text message. Email marketing right now is difficult because it's getting spam filtered and it's going into the uh, into the junk folder and a lot of times they never even see your marketing. But mobile marketing, you text message somebody, they're going to see it. Matter of fact, we've had a lot of people even ask uh, we had our office meeting, and one of the agents says, you know, I just want to call them on the phone, but they want to be text messaged. You know, I mean, it's you got to type stuff out and all that, but this is how some people like to like to be contacted. So, you know, we do things, for example, I changed out 200 signs, and what I did is I put local numbers and, and then an 800 number writer that are call capture numbers so I know and I never miss a call that of who calls and then it gives them a little bit of information about the home and then they if they want to talk to somebody directly they can press zero and go directly you know to the to the office and talk to us you know directly but in the meantime while they're still on the phone it emails us their phone number and lets us know what house they're sitting in front of now how many people would not want to know that I mean, if you do the follow-up call uh, too soon, they're still listening to the message. This is a great way to be able to, you know, make sure that you're you're following up with the people that actually looked at the home and being able to track your showings and this kind of thing. In addition to that, um, we've developed some software directly where one of the big problems with the QR codes, which has been, they just drive you to a landing page and there's no way to capture the uh, you know who called well we've developed some software that has uh, with our IT uh, staff that when people scan that QR code it directly will take it to their SMS text which then uh, will capture you know who called and provide a, you know a follow-up you know text message you know directly so there's another way to really focus on that mobile you know marketing so that's a big thing mobile marketing and uh, of course, all the other channels that you have, which is in a tech-savvy world, obviously people are carrying around iPads, and people are on the social media. You know, the Facebook. You know, you the like I say, the LinkedIn. You know, Twitter, uh, Pinterest is another big thing nowadays. I mean, Pinterest, huge. I mean, it's just it's it's like more traffic now than uh, Facebook and Twitter. I mean, as far as P the visits and the hit and the hits. I mean, it's just nuts, and that's just all, um, uh, you know, picture based and all that. But doing that the the proper way, uh, which is really something fairly new. And uh, but for example, you you know, you go out there and you create these boards on Pinterest, and I have a board, for example, for uh, luxury homes that I've posted multiple uh, photos on and you put your URL but I'm get there people are repinning that like crazy into different into their boards and then that thing ends up going almost viral and drives traffic and that's the whole key element to really anything is driving the traffic you know driving the traffic to your website 
whether it's a squeeze page or it's your website for people to search, you know, the MLS and uh, and that type of thing, which is really one of the big things is people love to search. I mean, that's what they like. So those things, those are just some of the things that I think are are huge, you know, most recently. When you talked about the mobile marketing, what you're really saying is that you're trying to get into this SMS text situation. Is that what you're trying to do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's SMS text is a huge thing, like I say, because of the ability to contact the folks. So if you're you're not able to get through to people through the traditional methods, then you can uh, you can text message them because there's it's more likely that they're going to you know read that comparatively. Have you tried to set up auto responders or an automated sequence of information to go out by text? Yeah, there is some systems out there that we're actually in the middle of testing right now. So uh, I don't have a full report on that, but yeah, that absolutely. It's all about the timed interval. And that going, speaking of that, even on the email side of things, I mean, we have software that we use that does, um, you know, track, you know, open rates and click-throughs and, and, and all that and does timed interval auto-responses. I mean, that's a key element going back to what I said earlier, which was about the fortune being in the follow-up. I mean, just because you, you have somebody that has inter gives you a name and email, I mean, there's ways to go and find out, you know, the people's, you know, phone uh, and alternatively their email. Uh, I mean, Google's a wonderful thing, you know, and uh, and then put them into your sequence of follow-up. And the follow-up, see, is not just email follow-up anymore. It's, it can, it's, it's video. I mean, video, that's the biggie, you know. Get out there and, you know, talking about tech savvy, I mean, video is huge. When you say video, what do you mean by video? Well, like video follow-up with video email, you know, where you embed, you know, video in your follow-up email. I mean, we're developing a uh, done-for-you uh, kind of solution that we're going to launch to the um, uh, agents and uh, as well as, you know, some personal training and that kind of thing as far as the REO and this and some other different areas with uh, marketing and all that that we'll be getting out here pretty soon. But video email, where you're embedding a video where people can, act, it'll just actually start playing when when people uh, open up their email. Or they can click on it and go somewhere else. And what is the actual video itself? What are people seeing when they open up their email? Or what are they seeing? Well, they're going to see, you know, me, for example, talking as the as the team leader and providing some some quality information that's the the thing that people are wanting and where they're going to get quality information it's not about just sending email no different than what i was saying before it's about providing information that's valuable and building that rapport through through being of service and then that's how i think you earn people's business so you're talking about a standard pre-designed video that solves a problem or adds value, and it's sent out in this auto sequence. That's what you mean by video email. Is that correct? The video that's going to go in the email is going to be more of an introduction where, you know, hey, I'm Joe Martin, you know, Remax Diamond, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, thanks for the inquiry and talking about if the information that they have, uh, they can get available that will then lead them to a, a website if they click through 
which is all trackable, whether and we try to identify whether or not they're a buyer or they're a seller, and then that will provide a different sequence of follow-up. But that sequence of follow-up then will be, you know, buyer or seller related based on their decision, and that will have information within there in a in a video format as well as PDFs of information that they can utilize, uh, you know, to say, for example, you know, uh, uh, mistakes that uh, buyers, uh, you know, the 10 top mistakes that buyers should avoid, you know, making or et cetera, et cetera. Basically, what you're doing is changing the mode of delivery. Instead of sending them a text file, you want to send them a video. Yeah, absolutely. I've heard from some of the agents around the country, they're getting into a, the idea of recording a video instead of typing text. It's a, a very specific video to the one recipient stating their name, and it's just usually a, a quick 30-second or 60-second video you're doing on your webcam, and that's the email that you're sending off. Have you started to do any of that? I haven't done any of that directly, but that is, uh, I, I'm familiar with that, absolutely. And, and it works really well from the people that I've talked to. Yeah, because it's not only video, it's specific. It's to the individual. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, as, as a matter of fact, I know one person that uh, started doing that and uh, his response rates went from really low to nearly 100%. You've been exposed to that technology side when you were working in the auto industry, and so it sounds like you're trying to take some of those concepts and apply them to the real estate side. Yeah, I mean, this is all new, mostly new stuff, though. I mean, with uh, the technology that we've got now, I mean, you know, back, back then they didn't have a lot of this stuff that we have, you know, in today's market. You've mentioned sincerity before. Could you tell us more about your concept of sincerity? Well, I think sincerity comes from just being yourself and being real. I mean, you don't have to pretend to be anybody else but who you really are. And, uh, you know, it's something I always train, you know, the agents and the salespeople that I work, work with throughout my career is that true success really begins when you genuinely and honestly uh, begin to care about the person on the other side of the desk. And it's not about your wallet. What it's about is filling the need of the other person and being a good listener. And and that's really the key element. And until you can do that, similar to what I've been saying about even about getting hired with, you know, asset managers and things like that, I mean, it's not just about you. It's about, hey, how can you help them? How can you be of service? You know, it's an amazing thing when you go and you pass out a card and telling somebody that, hey, you know, if let me know how if there's any way that I can be of, of service. And that's just not, you know, business-wise. I mean, that's personally. And it's amazing when you just become a little bit transparent about who you are, where you've been, and what you've been, what you've been doing, that people will, you know, open up and begin to um, respond to you appropriately. I mean, you just have to care and be genuine. That's the, that's the big thing for me. And uh, I think that's one of the deals that... Uh, if people can do that, that it makes a big, big difference. I mean, I, I'm I'm the guy that 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 was like when I was in the car business. I mean, I used to sell, you know, 45, you know, vehicles every month. I mean, if 20 would be a a, a good month, a, a really good month, 
and I was selling 45 with a high of 63, and I ended up doing a, a corporate, um, I was the corporate internet, you know, fleet director, setting up all these things, and I'm doing 600 a month with a, with a big team. You know, of course, they decided to integrate things, and 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 I got out of the business uh, back into retail, and and I knew that wouldn't work, and it didn't. So when they wanted to me to rebuild that for them, I I decided to get back into real estate, which was my passion anyway, and. The fact is, everybody always says, God, how do you do that, you know? And how I did it was by, you know, being sincere. I mean, especially in that business. I mean, that was the last thing I ever wanted to do was, you know, be a car guy. But I wasn't your guy that stood out on the railing there with, like the vultures that everybody looks at those those people like. I was the guy who went out there and figured out a way to have to to have people be able to come in and avoid the normal back and forth of the traditional car selling, which everybody hates. So I never, I just, I was in the office mostly and people would come in past all these guys and they used to always get mad. Like, gosh, that's, I mean, a lot of times they would even try to, uh, what they call, they'd try to escape me on, on some of the deals and I'd find out that it was somebody else. So they would always ask, like, how do you do that? And it was just because of the simple fact that I listened and provided a way for people to have a good experience and, uh, you know, one that was straight up, not, you know, playing the game, you know, nobody likes to do that. I mean, and of course, one of the reasons that I really switched into real estate is because of the fact that it was not about just the commission. See, like in the car business, you, you get paid based on the gross commissions that you earn, where on real estate, it's really not that way. I mean, obviously, there's different levels and you get paid on that but what it's about is being able to fulfill somebody's dream you know and that's huge that's a big deal where you know I'd rather be fulfilling dreams and worrying about you know how much gross profit I can make Joe you mentioned earlier that you don't do all this by yourself you have a team could you walk us down the team members that you have not by the personal names but more by the positions so we can get a picture of structure could you name the positions on your team and what each of those positions does? We have an REO manager, which pretty much oversees, you know, the entire, you know, operation, making sure that everything is, you know, in place. And uh, then we have our transaction manager that handles all the transactions. Depending on volume, we'll have an extra position where they just focus, they just do offers. And, you know, the, the inventory is down right now, so we don't have that position because it's it's able to be combined with one of the others. But they the transactional manager handles offers as well as, you know, the transactions from contract to close. You know, there's a pre-marketing vendor manager, which handles everything from pre-marketing all the way to contract. Then we have field help, two uh, field guys that take photos, do weekly inspections, do occupancy checks, do the uh, cash for keys to begin with, and then we we end up going at at the final delivery in that. Then we have, you know, an inside salesperson that handles, you know, the incoming phone calls and begins the incubation process for the incoming uh, prospective people that are interested in buying or selling. And then we have buyer's agents, multiple buyer's agents, and some some are crossovers, and we have listing agents that will go out and, you know, list the homes. But we, the buyer's agents mainly focus and, you know, are generally quite busy with 
prospective uh, inquiries. So they mainly focus on, on the buyer portion. And then we have the in-house staff that handles all of the transaction uh, you know, after they turn in the contract and watching it through escrow. And we have a BPO valuation manager that does a lot of the data research and uh, pulling, you know, a lot of the comps. And then, of course, we look those over and review those and make sure that uh, everything's uh, proper. And because, you know, we're graded by that. And that's a key element, particularly on the listing, you know, BPOs, because you have to keep a certain number a certain percentage to the you know final sales price or you know it's going to affect your scorecard and uh you know my son my youngest son he's a partner in the in the business i used to have another partner and then he's he's left and went to to denver because uh, he's a younger guy and his parents are getting older he's going to be the noble son and so i i'm very blessed to have the opportunity to work with my youngest son here directly and he's uh became quite an excellent agent. He handles uh, a lot of that operations size. And we have an operations manager that helps on the marketing as well. So that kind of is the rundown. You mentioned inside salesperson. What does that person do to define that a little more for us? Well, you know, your outside salesperson would be kind of your buyer agent. The inside salesperson is one who, you know, you have incoming calls and they're going to take those incoming calls and begin to try and uh, determine, you know, what the people's needs are and put them in, into whatever sales funnel that they would fit and or connect them directly with one of the buyer's agents to set up a showing or something to that nature. And monitor, you know, a lot of the follow-up to make sure that, that that is happening, you know, properly. And phoning and helping to phone because, you know, you know, agents are out busy selling houses, and a lot of times that follow-up is something that that falls a bit short. So having somebody in-house that that's what they're doing makes a big difference and helps improve the uh, conversion. So the inside salesperson is taking in the lead and following up and incubating that lead. Is there a distinctive handoff between the inside salesperson and the buyer's agent? What is that, that handoff? Well, yeah, there there is in, in the sense that when those people are calling in, uh, most of them are calling in to off of a sign or, you know, some people come in through the Internet. Actually, quite a few come in through the Internet where it's name and email and that kind of thing. So it just depends on that situation as far as the handoff goes. I mean, some of those handoffs will happen immediately where they'll be transferred directly after determining what they're trying to do. Maybe they want to see a home set up a showing, that kind of thing, and we'll put them into contact or set up an appointment directly to come in the office and meet the meet the agent and then, you know, hand, hand it off that way. Or we'll hand it off directly by transferring the call directly to connect with the with the agent so they can, you know, set up the appointment to do the showing. So it sounds like the transition is when the, the prospect is ready to either look at a home, do a showing, or a buyer presentation. Does the lead ever go back to the inside salesperson after that time, or at that point is the lead now with the buyer agent? No, it stays. It's kind of in a dual role when there hasn't been. Maybe there's. It's been passed off for for some of the follow up directly, so it goes around. But the the inside salesperson is still doing some of the follow up as well. Uh, we have automated follow up that's going to happen as far as if it's just on the email, but the the they're helping out on the phone follow-up. 
and everybody's making notes in a centralized database so they know you know who's done what that's the whole key here what is that database are you using a specific software we use infusionsoft i mean we have top producer and and we have have used you know others like wise agent and things like that but the one that we're using currently is infusionsoft because it it does what i was saying earlier which it tracks you know open rates and click throughs and that type of thing so i mean that's information that you'd kind of like to know I mean, if you if you sent out emails, you'd kind of like to know if they people opened it or if they clicked on a certain link. That's kind of nice to know. At least it helps you helps you know. I mean, who has at least some level of interest? How do you compensate this inside salesperson? We pay them a salary plus a percentage of the deals that that are closed. Is your team profitable? Yeah, it is. It, it's based on volume. So if when the volume dips, obviously the profitability, you know, goes along with that because you have some basic, uh, you know, labor costs, which is one of those things, which is a scalable, uh, unfortunately, a scalable situation sometimes where when, I mean, we've been in, you know, over the last, you know, say six or seven years, I mean, we, we've, we've had to have, you know, some turnover when the, when the sales ha has, has dipped with some of the staffing. We have a tendency to staff heavy because we want to make sure that we have uh, top-notch customer service and not just to our clients but also to the realtor community because for example you know you have 73 offers you're going to get a lot of calls from a lot of realtors wanting to know what's going on in their offers. Well you've got to manage those and what happens uh, unlike a, a lot of agents we answer the phone you can get through to us and you can get the information that you need about availability, whether or not the, the property is available, and whether or not, you know, what's going on with your offer, that kind of thing. And so that ends up, you know, costing a little bit more as far as labor goes, but I think it's a key element. We have a lot of people, a lot of other agents even comment on that. You know, I, I think it helps us keep the turnover of the properties at a higher rate because they like to do business with us. So, yeah, profitability is is there. It just is uh, you know, scalable depending upon upon volume, which is, you know, part of my job as the rainmaker is to make sure that things are constantly coming in and we're producing leads and converting. Would you mind disclosing what your profit margin is on your team as a percentage of your revenues? Well, here's the thing. If you're an individual conducting business, you're going to have expenses. You got to buy signs. You got to buy lock boxes. You're going to do all the things that you would normally hire to do. So what you have to do is pencil out all those things and figure out how much you know you're worth per hour, and then decide if it's worth your time to do it. Like say your hourly rate for yourself is you know a hundred dollars. Well, if you can hire somebody for fifteen dollars and pay them, then obviously that would be a good choice because now you can focus on the things that you're making $100 an hour on. Well, a person by themselves are going to have all these ex these certain expenses no different than a team. It's just going to be a scalable situation. This is probably a long-winded answer to what you're, you're asking me, but but I'm trying to give you some insight on on, on some other things here as well. I guess the long and short is a person by themselves are going to carry probably to do it right with the right advertising, the right marketing. They're going to probably spend somewhere around 30 to 35, 
you know, percent. And on the REO side, they might spend anywhere from five to ten percent more of their GCI to to keep things going. I mean, keeping in mind that you know, on the REO side, you know, we have to carry a lot of those costs up front too. So we've got to factor all that in. You know, which I mean, every home you got to figure somewhere around twenty five hundred to three thousand dollars that you're going to be carrying on that home as far as uh, re getting reimbursed on some of the things that you've got to you know pay up front for. So on a big team, what's a good either expense per set or profit margin? Yeah, that's going to be I think what I, that's what I was saying somewhere around sixty percent to you know probably a high of seventy percent as far as the uh, as that goes. I mean, we spend as high as you know fifty percent on some cases to produce uh, you know the the volume. But I spend a lot on advertising and, and marketing, and I spend a lot on, like I say, on the labor. And then there's a lot of times where, I'll, you know, I'll carry the labor rather than, ha than, than having turnover. Are you saying your profit margin is around 50%? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, if you made a million dollars, if you made a million dollars, then you're going to probably net out somewhere around, you know, half of that. That is really good. Yeah, congratulations. Joe, why have you been so successful? I've been blessed with success. Here's the thing. I'm 18 years clean and sober. So I'm a, I'm a living miracle, really. And the fact is, uh, people ask me that, and it's the same answer that I give all the time, and it's the fact that my success began when I hit my knees. And I'm not going to get all spiritual on you, but what I'm going to say is that that's the true facts for me. You know, I've had multiple struggles throughout my life, and w one of those just happened to be in that arena. And when I really got outside of myself and began to, you know, kind of give up absolutely, so to speak, and things began to happen for me and begin really uh, ultimately being successful. Like I said, I mean, once I began to really care about the person on the other side of the desk, then things really, really began to happen. That's when true success really began for me. Had that not always been true? No, I mean, I've always been somewhat successful in everything that I've done based on what I learned even as a kid. But I don't think the, the real pinnacle of success for me began until, you know, I had this kind of epiphany, you know, of sorts. You mentioned self-inspiration and, and this concept of inspirational dissatisfaction. What does that mean? Inspirational dissatisfaction is when, for example, something that you're doing and you're doing it over and over again, of course, you know, that's and you're getting the same result. Uh, I mean, of course, that's a definition of insanity, too. But it's kind of like you get sick and tired of being sick and tired and you become inspired by the fact that you're dissatisfied with maybe where you're at, what you're doing. And instead of just accepting that, you you become inspired by doing that and then make the decisions and start doing the things necessary in order to create what I would call a burning desire. And when you have a burning desire to accomplish something, I mean, you can do anything that you want to do and accomplish any goal that you want to do if you set your mind to it. I mean, there's really nothing that you can't as long as, you, I mean, I mean, there's some limitations. I'm probably not going to become a doctor, you know, uh, at this point in my life. But that's not one of my goals. But if you really set your mind to doing something, I believe that you can by, you know, continuing to step forward and never giving up.
you know, a lot of that comes from, you know, in, in, what I call inspirational dissatisfaction. I mean, if you don't like where you're at, then you, something's got to change. I mean, you're going to be getting what you're getting, either whether good or bad, if you continue doing the same thing over and over again. So you, you're going to have to make some changes. And so, and a lot of those changes are going to come from changing your mindset. I mean, attitude is everything. I mean, this is the whole key to my success is I have always had a never-give-up attitude. I mean, even as a young child, you know, you know, going door from door selling Christmas cards, I, uh, you know, and selling newspaper subscriptions and everything else, I have always just never given up. And throughout my life, I mean, I there, there's, it's just been many times where I could have easily just thrown my hands in the air and said, "Hey, this is it." You know, uh, case in point. I mean, I was. Uh, uh, you know, married for 25 years, and uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, that 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 broke apart based on uh, an affair from my that my wife had, and you know that's a deal breaker for me. And and the the fact is, uh, I had built a team, and then I had to re rebuild the team because it broke apart in the middle of all this. You know, I went to one of um, I was working with one of the other companies. And I landed their Freddie Mac account and brought it to them with the full understanding that 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 was going to be we were going to be working on the account. And after several months, it didn't work out that way. And so the only way to get that back was to become an owner. So we ended up opening up our own place. And six months later, had the Freddie Mac account back in our lap. Well, I could have just gave up, but I became inspirationally dissatisfied and went and did something about it. That's a good example of that, I suppose. And so you bump into a problem, and you're going to be driven to find a solution. Yeah, I think in a simpler form, that's exactly right. Joe, how do you keep control of your time? Well, that's a forty-dollar question. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> that's a that's probably the hardest thing for me is that you know I do work a lot. I mean, uh, my wife says, uh, my, my my new bride uh, says, uh, which we've been on married almost five years. I met her online, beautiful woman, and a very nice lady. She says I'm a workaholic, and I'm in denial of that. But the the fact is, I probably am. <laughs> I work a lot. You know how I control my time is, I close the door, <laughs> and I focus. I mean, I've got three screens in front of me. And I'm not uh, bound by, you know, the phone. I have uh, a staff that helps me on the phone that helps, you know, screen uh, the calls. I mean, you know, I learned this, you know, from Dan Kennedy, the, the great copywriter and marketer. The fact is you've got to be able to control, you know, some of the inflow of the calls. Obviously, you know, we're, we're talking to asset managers and I've got them, you know, on speed dial. So I know when somebody's calling me, uh, that's an asset manager, people that I, uh, that I need to talk to directly. But you have to control some of that uh, inflow and not be totally controlled by, you know, whether it's email and jumping around and all this kind of stuff. And you have to eventually get to that point where you get some help. And that goes back to that, Hey, how much is your time worth type things and where are you going to focus? I mean, you got to focus on things that are going to be making, uh, you know, making you money or, and, and you got to have balance. I mean, you do have to have balance in life. And that's probably my biggest challenge is that, you know, I'm just so driven to always, you know, be the best and everything else that, you know, I, I have that tendency personally to, uh, to, to be imbalanced. And, uh, but, you know, that's just, that's just me and my workaholism and my denial of that. How many hours do you work in a typical week? 
too many is probably the answer. Uh, I I work. Um, I mean, it varies. It just depends. Here's what I know about working is that hey, I've always been taught like from my Midwestern uh, grandparents who I grew up with that you make hay while the sun shines. And so when there's work to be had and there's things that need to be done, you got to put in the time and effort to do that. I probably work, you know, 60 hours a week, something like that, you know, give or take. But it's it, it's not all at one time. It's not like I sit here and, hey, one day, you know, I'm here 10, 12 hours in one day. And, hey, maybe the next day I'm I'm here, you know, seven or eight hours. And, I you know, I balance it out where I'm, I am, you know, making, you know, I, I don't live far away. So, you know, a lot of times I'll you know, stop in, you know, the house and uh, and stuff like that. And the beauty of the Internet is in, in technology today is you can hop on that, whether you're got your iPad or your mobile phone or you're, or you're at home on a desktop or I'm logging in from, from home or I'm here in the office, you know, on the phone, you know, or, or in front of the screens, you know. But, you know, I do, I do have to be balanced. I mean, I got four kids uh, that are all grown. I got eight grandkids. So, you know, I, I, I work that in too. So I don't paint the wrong picture here. I mean, because the fact is, you know, I go to ball games. I don't go to all the ball games because I just have the demands of, of work. And, you know, a lot of people are depending upon, you know, me to keep things, you know, rolling. And plus, I really enjoy what I'm doing and I enjoy helping others. I, I really enjoy watching people and helping people to become successful. That's one of the reasons that we're starting up this uh, real estate personal trainer.com thing is because uh, we want to get some of this uh, stuff out to other people that has been, has proven to be very successful that works in the marketplace. So that's what we're going to do here. We're ramping that up now. What is this real estate personal trainer.com? Yeah, it's It's a new website that we're um, developing that we're going to provide, you know, personal training, you know, on, you know, everything from REO to some done for you solutions with, you know, follow up and things like that, that people can actually utilize that have, you know, proven successful for me over the years. Is this internal? Is this internal to just the people in your company? Or are you pushing this out to the market? What's going on there? No, we're actually going to push it out to the market. We had started to do this on an internal basis, and there's just been such a demand of the people that we've talked to to really get some of this information that has proven to be very successful that we decided to really just put it out to all the people and all the agents that you know really would want to be whether wherever they're at really. And is that up and running yet? No, not up and running. The domain we have and it's uh, you know under construction, but we're going to have a lot of video training, you know you know, PDF, uh, you know, actually even personal contact where we're going to have, I'm going to have a personal Skype group where people can get to personal direction, you know, through the Skype. That sounds great. I can't wait to hear more about that when it comes online. Sure. I'll let you know. Joe, if you were to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? What I would tell an agent who was just getting into the business. And what I do tell agents is I tell them one of my famous quotes, which is, hey, if you're getting into this business to to try to be successful, then you might as well not even begin. Because try is a noncommittal word that justifies mediocrity and failure. I mean, you've already given yourself the excuse up front to fail. Because after all, you just tried. There is no trying. The thing is, you can't try this on for size. You're either going to be successful or you're not. You have to make that decision. And let's face it, when self-doubt runs in the front door, 
of success runs out the back. And this, what I see from new agents, that they get into the business and then, you know, a month down the road or two weeks or however long it takes, all of a sudden this self-doubt starts creeping in and when they don't have a sale on the board and then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, it just perpetuates itself into the point where they just give up because they have so much self-doubt. And that happens a lot of times. So guarding against that and, and, and really inputting the right, you know, mindset and, and maintaining that and just remembering that, hey, every no is just one step closer to a yes. I mean, you may get, you know, 20 no's, but the, but the next one, if you don't ask, you're not going to get the yes by not getting out there and, and continuing to step forward. Success is getting up one more time than you fall. And that's what you got to do. I mean, you got to fail to be successful. That's, that's really one of the reasons I've been successful, because I've failed so many times. I mean, it's like Michael Jordan and that one thing that I saw on the, on the YouTube. That was masterful, but it's so true how he has, you know, failed so many times and missed so many shots and missed so many game winners. And, you know, that's why he's such a great, uh, was a great ball player, you know, because he, you know, went out there and took the risk and was willing to do what the unsuccessful agents are unwilling to do. See, and, and that's really one of the things that, that to me has been one of my big keys to success is I've always been willing to go the extra mile. I've always been willing to give 110%. And, uh, you know, it's not one of those deals like, well, well, it's only a $50,000 deal. I mean, I, I don't care if it's 50000 or $1.8 million. Okay, I'm giving that same level of service to everybody because, you know, I found out the 50000 guy ends up referring me a $400,000, you know, cousin that's buying a $400,000 house and, and they refer business to you because here again, it's about relationships. One of my agents, uh, he uh, drove across town. I mean, Buckeye, it's probably 40 miles away and it was a $40,000, $50,000 client uh, looking to buy one of the uh, lower end REOs and, and, and he drove over there and he helped these folks out and they ended up, um, referring him some business for some huge house that he ended up selling over here on the east side. But he was a guy that was willing to do that. And it and that's what you gotta do. You gotta go the extra mile and you gotta remember to never give up and you have to remember that it's it's gonna it's gonna work out. But you gotta believe that it's gonna work out. Because if you don't believe it, then it's 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 not. I mean it's like they say you whether you believe you can or you can't, you're right either way. You gave me a great quote. You said, failure is the price of success, so keep stepping forward. I think that ties into what you just said. Yeah, I, I think you're right. That That's very true. Yeah, you just got to keep stepping. Just keep stepping. It always works out as long as you don't give up. And, and you know, I, interestingly enough, Years ago, I mean, another one of the industries that I was in was in the it was in the uh, in the grocery business. I was I did that in the very beginning, like when I was, I was 16. I started out as a bagger and worked my way up in the management roles, and ended up you know being in in store management. But they would move managers from store to store. You would only stay in a store maybe one year, and then they would move you. And I worked for uh, Safeway. And that was one of the companies I worked with for years. Well, anyway. They would move you. And one of the reasons they would move you is because when you're there, all of a sudden that, that, the, the dust on top of the shelves and everything else just start becoming part of the furniture. 
and your attitude changes. And what happens is just like agents. Agents who, you know, leave and go to somewhere else, or well, the only thing that really changes is their attitude. That's it. It's the same job. It's the same everything. But what changes is the attitude. That's the key. Maintain a positive attitude. It's not about where you're at, who you're working for, or all that. It's about what is your attitude, and is it positive, or is it going to be... I mean, you, anybody can justify anything if they want to. I mean, you can justify and rationalize anything. And if you're going to start painting a picture about how everything is bad, well, guess what? It's going to be bad. One of the key elements that I would recommend that everybody do, and this is something I've done for a while, you know, I do it periodically. But actually, I put it out there to, to some folks, and, and it's called the Gratitude Challenge. For the next 10 days, go out there and write down every morning 10 things you have to be grateful for. Because now, all of a sudden, you're going to start your day out with an attitude of gratitude. Just, just imagine that for a moment, how that's going to feel. When you get up, write down 10 things that you have to be grateful rather than rolling out and being on the pity pot about, you know, poor me, or we'll start bitching about something that you have to complain about. No, let's start our day out with an attitude of gratitude. Because we do have a lot to be grateful for, believe me. I mean, I had a friend who was sitting in in a meeting, and, and he's looking down, he's complaining, and he's going on, he's just terribly complaining, and just going on and on and on. And, and he's, he's wearing these just, these brand new, I mean, $120 tennis shoes. And the guy next to me says, nice shoes, as he kind of leans forward and looks down the, down the row, and on the end of the row is a guy with no legs. You get my point. I mean, we have a lot to be grateful for. So, it, you know, it, it doesn't have to be the same. It, it can't be the same every single day. But every day for the next 10 days, write down 10 things you have to be grateful for. You will be absolutely incredibly amazed at what happens to your complete psyche when you wake up and you have this attitude of gratitude and you start writing down the things that you have to be grateful for. Joe, do you think the top agent interviews like the one we're doing now are valuable? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, any time that you can get solid information from people that have been successful, and that's one of, been one of the things that I have attributed to the success that I've had is by having this constant quest for knowledge from other, from other people. I mean, I, I'm like a, a, a knowledge junkie, seriously. It's just I cannot stop, you know, learning, and I spend a lot of time educating myself. I mean, I've taken different courses. I mean, I've done, you know, lots of, um, you know, de designation stuff. I mean, I'm always trying to learn more. And this is a great way for people to plug in and learn from some of the better people in the in the area uh, of, of that they're they're focused on, obviously, real estate. I commend you for for doing this. And uh, when I saw it, I was like, hey, that's something I'd like to be a part of because I really do love to share and help others, you know, be, be successful. I mean, it's there for the taking, but you just have to have, you know, the right tools and the right beliefs and the right mindset. I mean, it really, it's, it's not that hard. It really isn't. I mean, it's amazing to me how some people struggle and others thrive. But if you look at the difference between the two, most of the time it's because of the attitude where, you know, one person is, you know, complaining about, you know, what what they didn't have and other people are out there, you know, being of service and having the right attitude and putting uh, uh, putting forth the effort necessary. 
Well, Joe, you demonstrate the importance of attitude. You see failure as a stepping stone to success. When you stumble, you use inspirational dissatisfaction to drive you forward. You are a testament to persistence, determination, focus, and the rarest of abilities, the ability to change. You are an inspiration to our industry. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. And join us next time when we talk to an agent who specializes in geographic farming and sold 573 homes last year. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to the Mastermind Agent Interview of the Month Club, where top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com.